gracious to us, so I thank him for that. Well, this morning, we get a chance, uh, really a privilege, to turn the page, uh, an important page in our study in the book of Romans. And I'm going to put a a little chart on the screen. You're probably getting sick of seeing this, and that's actually the point. Um, You know, they say that you've got to keep, you've got to keep reinforcing things over and over again, or else it goes in one ear and out the other. So the point is, is you get so tired of seeing that, that it would be seared into your brains, so that any time in the rest of your life you open up the book of Romans, you'll think of my face. No, you'll think of the outline, and you'll think about the flow of God's letter to the Romans, and you'll be able to discern where you are within the structure of Paul's letter. So five books within the book of Romans. And they're, they're pretty easily discernible, but it's good for all of us to understand how Paul strings them together in his argument. And as you can see, as we come to Romans 6 this morning, we move into book 3 of the five books, the book of sanctification. And, and what that does, whenever we get to a new book like this, it gives us a chance to sort of backtrack a little bit and review where Paul has been. So I want to do that with you briefly this morning, again, so that we can understand the entire flow of Paul's argument here in Romans, which is so beautifully laid out for us. So remember, we began back in chapter 1, verse 18, with the book of sin. And the first step in Paul's argument is to establish that God's wrath hangs over all of humanity. Every human being is accountable to God for sin. So some of the most important verses we read, verse 18 of chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they, all of humanity, are without excuse. And then Paul speaks of the rampant idolatry of man, which undergirds so much of that suppression of the truth. He says in verse 25, For they, humanity, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So he's laying a heavy foundation here about all of humanity. And as Paul's focus then in chapter 2 is making sure that the Jews in his audience, because there were Jewish believers in the church of Rome, that they had not grown sort of content in themselves by wagging, by wagging a bony finger at the pagan Gentiles and saying, see, see, you guys are condemned. No, Paul wants to make sure that they too are accountable for sin. They are not exempt at all. So he says in chapter 2, verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Later in verse 25, for indeed circumcision, which is what the Jews are so proud of, right? Circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You're no better than the Gentiles. Now, as you open up chapter 3, Paul lays out this, this devastating truth straight out of the Old Testament. He says, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. And then he writes this in verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Now, at verse 21 of chapter 3, we turn the page from the book of sin to the book of salvation, and right out of the gate, we read this foundational truth that is, if anything, is the biggest idea that we find in the book of Romans. Now, apart from the law, 
The righteousness of God has been manifested. Do you hear that? Apart from the law, apart from works. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. Foundational principle. Paul's focus in chapter 4 then is interesting, having established this really this earth-shattering doctrine of justification by faith alone. He then sets out to explain and prove it from the Old Testament scriptures using Abraham as his example. He says this, chapter 4, verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith alone in the Old Testament, in the life of Abraham. He goes on, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Are you catching the flow here? As he comes to chapter 5, Paul now turns his attention to the the redeeming work of Christ that he accomplished for the elect. We read in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. Man, that's good news. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, For while we were still helpless, helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, Someone would dare even to die, but God. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul has established the doctrinal truth regarding God's wrath and regarding what Christ has done to save his people, both sin and salvation. And now we arrive at chapter 6 today. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn, if you're not there already, to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at the, the first seven verses here this morning. So over the next three chapters now, as we get into this book of sanctification, chapters 6, 7, and 8, what Paul's going to do is emphasize the connection between justification, which he's laid out very clearly. How is that connected to sanctification? That's a big emphasis here. What is sanctification? To be sanctified is to be set apart by God, right, for holy use. So when we talk about sanctification, all we're talking about is the process that we're all going through to grow in holiness, The process that takes a lifetime, right? Because we never really get there. It takes place over a lifetime of being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in holiness. And Paul's going to make the point that all those who've been justified by faith, every person that's been justified by faith in Christ will also be sanctified. Paul cannot imagine somebody being justified by God, but not in the process of being sanctified. We're going to see fruits in the life of somebody who's truly a believer. If you've been justified, you're being sanctified. That's a big part of what he wants to say. So as we transition now from the book of salvation to the book of sanctification, Paul's really going to turn his attention to this very important question. Now that we've been justified by faith before God, how are we supposed to live in him? And that phrase, in him, in Christ, is so important to this entire book within the book. Now that we've been justified, how do we live in him? What does life look like in Christ? It's a big part of what he's going to talk about here. So as we read today's uh, verses, actually, let's go back to chapter 5 quickly. We'll read the last couple of verses. Remember the big idea from last Sunday? and We did verses 12 to 21. The big idea was this. We have these two men who are representative heads of two races. We can talk about one human race, two tribes, right? Adam and Christ. 
And every human being on the face of the earth is represented by one of those two men. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. Either we're condemned in Adam because his sin has been imputed to us or, or credited to us, or we're justified in Christ because his righteousness has been imputed or credited to us. It's one or the other, right? Look at verse 20 in chapter 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise God, right? His mercy is more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we open up chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Hmm. Now, before we break that down, let me give you just, I want to give you some foundational truths because this is going to help us as we go through these three books in the book of sanctification. Um, a foundational truth about sin and salvation. And this is, this is going to be a little bit overwhelming. So hang with me as I go through this. This is a simple chart that I was, I was literally given in seminary. And it served me well to come back to it many times to talk about the way that mankind is in relationship to sin. And, and I just say, it, rather than sketching it down real fast like a lot of you want to do, if you want this in a much more expanded form, in a much more clear form, send me an email this week and I'll shoot it to you. But let me walk you through it real quick because this is important for us to understand. All human beings have a threefold relationship to sin. You see that in the bigger yellow letters up there. First of all, all are under the penalty of sin, being guilty of violating God's law and, of course, subject to the appropriate punishment. Second, all are under the power of sin, the power of sin. In fact, we're slaves to it. We're unable not to sin, right? Think about that. We're unable not to sin. We're under the power of sin. And third, all humanity operates in the presence of sin. It is, it is replete within us. We are totally depraved within our body, our heart, our mind, all of it has been corrupted. And so the idea of being saved, when we talk about being saved, we sometimes don't realize all that that encompasses. It means being delivered from those three things. Okay, And who can do that for us? Only God. Only Jesus. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. How? By suffering the wrath of God in our place. Correct? He saves us from the power of sin by giving us the Holy Spirit within us who then gives us the victory over sin and Jesus saves us from the presence of sin when at the end of the age he will return to transform us into a glorified state. That's good news, right? So theologians talk about God's elect being saved really in three tenses. You see them there. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, right? That's a completed action in the past. We're being saved from the power of sin. That's ongoing right now by the Holy Spirit. And we will be saved from the presence of sin when that day comes that we arrive in glory. Three different tenses. Now, each of those tenses has a theological uh, label to it, a theological name. Salvation in the past, 
from the penalty of sin, we call that justification, right? Salvation in the present from the power of sin is what we're talking about now. That's sanctification. And salvation in the future from the presence of sin is, of course, glorification. It goes on. Justification is past and positional. Sanctification is present and progressive. And glorification is future and permanent. I hope you're tracking. There's a test at the end. Justification is how God sees us in Christ. Sanctification is what we are in our daily experience with Christ. And glorification is what we will be someday in heaven with Christ. And finally, justification is something that is done for us. Sanctification is something done in us. And glorification is something done to us. Okay? Tracking with me? Because this is gonna, a lot of these big words, we're going to be using them as we go through the rest of the series. But it's important for us to understand both the nature of sin... And also the nature of what it means to be being saved. Both are important. Okay, so let's break down our passage just a bit. Let's start by putting on the sandals of a first century person who, who lives in the, in, in the city of Rome and goes to the church there. And I want you to think about he's, he or she is listening to Paul's letter to the church for the very first time. Can you imagine, by the way, imagine ha- having been, I mean, we'll meet, I suppose we'll meet people in heaven who were actually there in the first century. They were sitting in the chairs or the pews or maybe on the ground. Whatever it was, when the, when the messenger came in and said, we have a letter from the Apostle Paul, and they would have been in the first hearing of all this. Can you imagine? Oof. I know. I'm a history geek. Uh, so as, as Paul finishes his book of salvation, there's no doubt that some of the people in that audience who were listening to this letter being read, they would have been surprised by what Paul's written so far. Some of them probably would have been upset especially if they had a Jewish background. Try to imagine hearing this long doctrinal section, right, talking about the wrath of God that hangs over both Jew and Gentile, and this justification by faith alone, completely apart from from good works and apart from obedience to the law. Imagine you're a, a Jewish believer, a young, immature Jewish believer listening to that. That would have been really difficult to hear. It would have been difficult to hear. And worse, what was probably going through the mind of at least some of his listeners in that day is where Paul's teaching might lead. What are the ramifications, the implications of what Paul is teaching here? Think about this for a second. They would have been saying to themselves, hey, Paul, if you teach that, if you continue to preach that, people are going to lead immoral lives. They're just going to. If you say that our works contribute nothing to our acceptance by God and that God justifies us freely, simply by faith alone, that is going to lead to moral chaos. You're just not giving people any good reason to pursue holiness. Does that make sense? Bottom line, if my sin increases and God responds with more grace, well then why not just get out there and sin away? This is what the people would have been thinking, at least some of them. In fact, play this out to its its furthest extent. The more I sin, the more opportunity God has to reveal his grace in my life. So maybe more sinning on my part is actually a good thing. Can you see how that might have worked? If you were especially somebody who was Jewish and you had this very specific background related to the law, and now Paul's saying, no, doesn't have anything to do with obedience to the law. That would have been pretty tough. Now, theologically, we call this big word antinomianism. Antinomianism, a compound word, anti, we know that means against, and namas, which means law, anti-law. 
Functionally, what that means is it's, it's the unbiblical practice of living without regard to the righteousness of God. Living in such a way that you use God's grace as a license to sin. Antinomianism. Sometimes it's stated like this. If God delights in justifying the ungodly, well then why be godly? And if our acceptance with God depends completely on what he does, then does it really matter what we do? Let's just go out and sin all the more. And that's the basis for the objection we see here in verse 1. What shall we say then, Paul writes, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, historically, you have to understand, that's the great objection to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is, this is what the Roman Catholic hierarchy often objects to when it comes to Protestantism. They will accuse us of being antinomians. To say, you can't say that. You can't tell people to just rest in the grace of God. They will go crazy. They have no control over themselves. They will, they will sin like animals. Even the Mormons who knock on your door, the missionaries, will oftentimes have a problem with this. Because both the LDS doctrine and the Roman Catholic doctrine demand that good works must fit into God's equation for salvation. And both are afraid that allowing people like us to just, to just rest in God's grace is going to lead to antinomianism. But look at Paul's reaction to that idea, to that, that twisting of truth. He says, may it never be. That's a, in Paul's mind, that's a gross conclusion. No way, he says. God forbid, he says. May it never be. Now, take note of this. Just because Paul's upset that some in the Roman church might draw a false conclusion doesn't mean that he's going to backtrack on his teaching. And that's an important principle for us today. When we're out there speaking to people about hard truths from Scripture... We're going to run into objections, aren't we? We're going to possibly step on some toes. What we want to avoid doing then is modifying the truth or softening it in some way that takes the power out of the gospel. We don't want to do that, and Paul doesn't do it. Paul doesn't retract his emphasis on God's grace. He simply moves forward and says, look, this objection about antinomianism is absurd. And his response is, this, is simple. It, it, it's so simple that this, that this statement has often puzzled people. He says this, You want to know why we can't continue to sin? Because Christians are people who have died. Right? Next issue. (laughs) Right? And that's why why I'm up here. I'm going to try to explain this between today and next week and, and maybe some other weeks after that to try to explain exactly what that means. But that's the short answer. We have died to sin. And he forms it here in a rhetorical question, right? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Rhetorical questions, by the way, are not questions, right? You guys understand what those are? They're really statements that are being made. It's like the dad who walks into uh, the living room one day and sees his son on the couch and says, hey, you know, you're not going to make a living if you just sit on the couch all day. He's not really asking a question, is he? He's not expecting the son to answer that. It's a statement. If you sit there like a bum, you're not going anywhere. Okay, so it's a rhetorical question. Paul's making a statement here. He's basically saying, how should we who died to sin still live in it? And the statement he's making is this, we can't. We can't. We can't continue to live in sin. And what Paul's getting at here is not that it's impossible for a Christian to sin, but he's pointing to two things that are really incompatible. The Christian life and sin are incompatible, is what he's saying. A Christian simply doesn't live consistently in sin. And the rest of the book of sanctification is going to be an explanation of why basically that's true. 
So we'll get into that. In fact, we get into chapter 7. It's really going to get thick, right? So there's a lot to be said about this as we move along. By the way, today I'm not going to answer every question. Here's one of the challenges, if I can just be personal for a second. And I mentioned this to some of the elders this week. The challenge in preaching through Romans is you want to say everything about everything now. But you can't because there's great verses coming up down the road and you want to save some of the good stuff for later. That means you just have to keep coming back to church, right, if you want to get the full story. But for right now, today I need to sort of leave this up in the lofty realms because next week and the week after, we'll really get into some of the street-level nitty-gritty about what it means to, to live as a Christian and struggle with sin. So bear with me in that. So now look how Paul follows up with this. He says, we can't keep living in sin. Don't you know this? I sense a little bit of frustration in his voice here. Look what he says in verse 3. Do you not know, have you not been taught that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? It's another rhetorical question, another statement being made here. Once you were in Adam, an enemy of God, but now you're in Christ. So surely you know that you've been baptized into his death. Surely you know that. Paul believes it would be surprising that a Christian wouldn't know that. By virtue of your representative union with Jesus, when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. In fact, that's what he says in the first half of verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And as we've seen over the last couple of Sundays, the verb tenses matter here. Once again, Paul is making extensive use of the aorist tense, which indicates a whole bunch of completed actions in the past, things that have been done in the past. We died to sin, he says. We have been baptized into his death. We have been buried. These things have happened to all true Christians those things have happened to you. If you're, you've trusted in Christ, those things have happened to you. Why? Because of our union with our representative head, Jesus. We were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. So those things have happened to you and to me. That's what he's saying here. Now, why bring in baptism? That's always one of the questions here. What, what's the point of the baptism? Well, the emphasis here is really less on the, the activity of water baptism. It's really more about identification. It's what, it's what baptism symbolizes here. He's reminding us of of our identity in Christ. And that's a big part of why we baptize, right? Baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ through faith. As we publicly identify with him, we go under the water, right? In recognition of what? Our union with him in his death and burial. That's really what Paul's getting at here. Our baptism reveals outwardly that we died with Jesus. And so the question comes back up then. If that's true, how can we continue to live in sin. Paul goes on to explain this a bit more in verse 6, and this is where it gets really beautiful in verse 6. He makes a whole bunch of important statements, and then he shows you some really important results. Look at the statement here. He says, our old self was crucified with Christ. That's a really important statement. Our old self was crucified with Jesus. Again, aorist tense, was crucified. If you're a Christian, your old self was crucified with Jesus. It's a completed action. Your old self was nailed to the cross. It was a decisive end to this thing we call the old man or the old self that was once an Adam but is now in Christ. It's dead. It's gone. That's what we need to uh, uh, accept here. The results are, look at verse 6 again, two things. First of all, that our body of sin might be done away with, and secondly, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. 
And again, because of our, uh, our, our union with Christ, because he's our representative, because he came to be our substitute in that death, when he was crucified, we were somehow crucified with him. And so that old self, right? That old man was in Adam, and that one old self was rebellious towards God, right? It was unregenerate. That self was nailed to the cross. And when that old self was nailed to the cross, the dominion of sin that reigned over you, the power of it was broken. So there's all kinds of amazing things being talked about here that Paul's going to flesh out in subsequent chapters. Listen, God counted the old sinful you as dying with Jesus on that cross that day. God reckoned the old sinful you as dying that day. That's important. Now, this is where a lot of Christians that I talk to, they make a theological mistake here. They, because we continue to wrestle with sin, even after we're saved, even after our conversion, we, we still wrestle with sin. People have mistakenly thought that, well, God gives us a new self, and he just adds the new self to the old self. Right? And, and so this is the unfortunate part of sometimes we... We, uh, we diagnose based on our experience rather than on God's word. And we say, well, what's probably happening then is my, at times when I sin, my old self is controlling me. And at times when I'm obeying, my new self is controlling me. And we become like a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, that is not what Paul is teaching here. That is not what scripture describes. We are not spiritually divided like that. Again, the old self was what you were in Adam. Before you trusted in Christ, the unregenerate self. And Paul says definitively that it was crucified with Christ. That old self is gone. Jesus didn't die to improve your old self. That's an important statement. He's not a friend of the old self. Jesus came to kill it. He came to kill it in order to raise us to new life. That's the truth. And here's the big point of all this. If that is true, if our old unregenerate selves were nailed to the cross to die there, are you ready? You and I can't go on living the life we used to live because we're no longer the people we used to be. That sort of ties up the bow when we talk about dying to sin. We cannot go on living the life we used to live because we're no longer those people. The old man was crucified. It gets better because of our old self was crucified with Jesus Paul says a couple things. First of all, our body of sin, our sin-dominated body is what he's talking about here, might be done away with. Now, that translation, by the way, in the New American Standard, I think is a bit misleading. The Greek verb here, katergeo, which the NAS translates as done away with, is, in my opinion, better translated as the CSB does it, which is rendered powerless, rendered powerless, or the ESV, which says brought to nothing. So that the body of sin would be rendered powerless. That that body of sin would be brought to nothing. The point is this. Paul's not talking about sin in our bodies being totally eradicated. That's not going to happen until we're glorified. What he is talking about is the power of sin being broken in our lives. The power of sin being broken. Because the old self dies on the cross. Sin's power to control you is now broken. Again, we're going to talk more in subsequent weeks about how that fleshes out practically, but understand the lofty picture that Paul's giving us here. The big idea is the the power of sin's broken because your old self is done away with. Now, the other amazing result we have here is that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. Now, 
That's an issue of power as well. I am going to completely save that for another time because that issue is going to continue to come up over and over and over again. This idea of being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. For today, just know this, that everyone who is found in Christ, sin is not to be our master. We are not to submit to it. We're not to submit ourselves as a servant or a slave to sin. Why? Because we have a new master, don't we? We have one master. You cannot serve two, Jesus said, right? Because you will love one and hate the other. So which is it? Will you love Jesus or will you love sin? You can only have one master. Again, much more to say on that subject in subsequent Sundays. So, a lot of big stuff here. Now, here's the great news. Paul doesn't leave us there. There is more good news, right? Because he talks about one more really important thing. Look at verse 4. He says, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Here's the good news. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen, right? As Jesus' death and burial were followed by the glorious triumph of his resurrection, so too our union with him won't end in that death. It will end in resurrection power, in newness of life. In Adam, we are enslaved by sin. And spiritual death. In Christ, we're set free from it. We're set free from the mastery of sin over us. So here's a good way to think about this. Our stories, think about them being written in two volumes. Volume number one is the story of our old self. And it's represented by Adam and all that comes with him, right? His imputed sin, his guilt, his corruption, all of that. Volume two is the story of the new self. Becoming a new creation in Christ. Volume one ended with the judicial death of my old self. I deserve to die, I did die. I almost feel like I need to make you say that, just so that you understand. I did die. Because sometimes we don't live like that, do we? I deserve to die, I did die. Only Jesus stepped in as my substitute and took the actual pain and penalty for me, right? Praise God, right? And as volume one ends on the cross, volume two opens with my resurrection to newness of life. To a life that's no longer driven by by love of self, but by love of God for his glory. So I like to think of it this way. Jeff No is dead. Jeff No died. I was rightly judged guilty of sin and rebellion against God. And that self was condemned and crucified. He's gone. He was so infected with sin. It was such a heavy weight. There's no way to improve him. He needed to die. God killed Jeff No. Does that sound strange? I praise him for that. I praise him for that. That means that the only life that I now have, I live through the power of Christ's resurrection. That's the theological truth. Now, again, we're going to flesh this out practically, but understand that's the theological truth that Paul's saying here. The only life that we have as believers is live through the power of the resurrection. Why? Because I was raised with Christ. And because I live only in Christ, I know that this new creation has no business living in a pattern of sin. Do you understand? Because the only life that I have is now through resurrection power in Christ, then I have no business living in a continual pattern of sin. That's what Paul's saying here. Now one last thought, just in case this was in your head. If you, you might be tempted to hear this and go, oh, man, is Paul teaching perfectionism here? Is he teaching that we should never, ever sin again? Obviously not. Guys, that would, that would contradict so much of New Testament teaching, right? So we know that that's not true. 
Here's what's going on. And this is a theological theme that I know I've talked about here before. And it's, it's, a, it's a heady theme, but it's really important as we understand the way that there's these great grand theological truths and then there's the practical street-level stuff. And we call it the already-not-yet experience of the Christian life. The already-not-yet experience of the Christian life. I want you to stop for a second and think about all the things that are already true of you. If you're one of God's elect, if, if Christ has saved you, if he's come in, regenerated your heart, made you alive in him, he saved you, you sit here today in Christ, think about all the things that he has already done for you, positionally, already, let me list them for you. We've already died, right? Our old selves having been crucified. We've already been buried with Jesus. We've already been raised up to new life with him. In fact, do you know in Ephesians 2, it actually says that we've already been seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's how sure our salvation is. We died with him. We're buried with him. We're raised to newness of life. We're seated in the heavenly realms. That's how sovereign God is. We've already received the imputation of his righteousness. We're fully forgiven. We've already received the, the or been adopted as his beloved children with this mind-boggling inheritance that's just waiting for us to take hold of it. We've already been delivered from the power of sin and eternal death. All those things have already happened. Already happened. If you're in Christ today. And still, this is the frustrating thing, right? There's still the not yet. There's still the not yet part of our Christian life because we're not yet perfected. Right? Are you frustrated by that? There should be some holy frustration in that because we all want to be more like Christ, don't we? We're not yet perfected in our daily earthly experience. Our transformation doesn't happen all at once. It's progressive in nature. It's growing in time. And so for now, we fight the good fight of faith, right? And we strive by the power of God's spirit that lives within us to become in practice what we really are in position. Fully united with Christ and perfected. We strive to become that. Even though it won't happen until we see him face to face. We strive with all of the power that he gives within us. We strive together as a church family, right? Holding each other accountable. Walking hand in hand, arm in arm, until Christ calls us home. That's the not yet. But because the spirit lives within us, folks, the trajectory of the Christian life is always this sort of slow and steady triumph over sin. Oh, there'll be times when you fall back. But the trajectory over your life will be a slow and steady triumph over sin in your daily life. A gradual confirming to the image of our great bridegroom. In fact, this is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained it, he says. Okay, this is Paul, right? Has a, putting, putting Christ aside, has there been a human being who's walked the earth that understood the gospel better than Paul? And he says, look, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, right? So if... We know if Paul says he's not perfect yet, clearly he's not teaching perfectionism, right? He says, but I press on. I strive so that I may take hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the not yet part of it. Already those things are true. Not yet they're being worked out, right? There's coming a time when it will be, it'll be done. And the older I get, the more I look forward to that. It's coming, right, Rob? <laughs> Now, theologically, we categorize all this stuff. This is pretty heavy stuff. We put it under the category of union with Christ. Union with Christ. And this is something that isn't taught a lot in the church, but it's really important. I want to wrap up with just some, some observations about what it means to be united with, 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. John Murray, the Scottish-born theologian who founded Westminster Seminary, he once called the subject of our union with Christ, get this, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Not simply a phase of salvation, but the truth, he said, that underlies every aspect of our redemption. I'd say that makes it pretty important. But it's not something you hear a lot about in churches today. Louis Burkhoff, the systematic theologian, defined it like this. He said, it's the intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. Did you hear that? Intimate, vital, and spiritual. In virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. It's a good definition. And so there's a whole bunch of ways that this is expressed in the New Testament. In fact, I'll I'll give you a couple of examples, and maybe you can finish the sentences here. In John 15, we're called the branches, right? And what are we connected to? The vine. That's union with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're called the body, which is connected to what? The head. Jesus, our head. In 1 Peter 2, we're called living stones joined to Jesus, the cornerstone. In Ephesians 5, we're called the bride connected to Jesus, the bridegroom. All of those speak of this vital union that we have with our Savior. 25 times in his letter, Paul uses the specific phrase, in Christ. And we have a tendency to read right over that. But that's what he's talking about. We are in him and he is in us. That's mind-blowing stuff. So practically, what does that mean? Well, think about the marriage ceremony, for example. How it's described in Ephesians 5, it says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. And you think, well, okay, well, that's great for human beings. But then Paul continues in Ephesians 5, he says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You're like, what? Interesting, right? So when a man and woman come to the altar to be married, they come as two individuals, but when they leave, having made vows before God, they're united together as one, as one. And in that moment, this exchange takes place. The properties of each individual come together and become the properties of both as one, right? That's the picture that we get. And that's true of us with Christ. In our marriage with him, We get this glorious exchange, right? We give him everything. All of our properties are given to him, and his properties are given to us. Who gets the better end of that? It's a glorious exchange, right? Our sin and our guilt, we go, here you go, Jesus. It's imputed to him, and he says, here's my perfect righteousness, and he shares that with us. It's imputed to us. And because we got the better side of that exchange, the Father Father now looks upon us, not as sinful any longer, because we have the properties of the one we're in union with. We've been, given them, we've been given those things to us. So now when the Father looks at us, he considers us, and he sees what? The righteousness of his son. That's life-changing stuff. That ought to impact your daily walk as you struggle and wrestle and strive against sin. To know that the Father, because of this glorious exchange, because we're one with Christ, in union with him, that father looks down and says i see a righteous man i see a righteous woman because of christ now there's a a number of different ways stages that we can talk about in terms of being united to him first and foremost we forget about this we were united to christ even before the foundations of the world were laid think about that for a second we were chosen in christ 
Long before we were born, he marked us out with a saving love. Amazing. Then there's the second aspect of union with Christ. We've talked about it. Jesus is our representative. How does that impact us? Well, this is amazing. In his earthly ministry, everything he did was for the benefit of his bride, the church. His baptism, his fulfillment of the law, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, even his ascension to glory, everything that Christ did in his earthly ministry was done on behalf of his chosen ones, his bride, those whom he would come into union with. All for us. The third important aspect is the personal one, the most personal one that we have today that takes place through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? According to Scripture, the Spirit comes and reminds us of all the things that Jesus said. The Spirit represents to our hearts the teachings of Christ himself. So we have personal union, very personal union with him right now by the Spirit. And this is the part of our union that that Paul's really emphasizing here when he talks about sanctification. See, so many Christians believe that my sanctification is about me just trying harder, doing better, pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. But we always have to keep in mind that this union has to be maintained if we're going to produce any fruit at all. That's what Jesus says when he says, whoever abides in me, whoever remains in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Right? If you're a branch, but you're not connected to the vine, you're not going to produce fruit. That's that vital union. It's, you've got to be connected to the vine if you want to produce any fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do absolutely bubkis. Nada. Give me some other words. Zilch. Right? Nothing. We can do nothing apart from being connected to the vine in, in union with our representative head. The same thing's true of the body, right? My hand is a vital part of my body. Now, just as the same sap flows throughout the vine to all the branches, the same life flows between both of them. They're shared by both the vine and the branches, right? The same blood, the life force that runs through my head runs through my hand. It's all connected to each other. It's vital. It's organic. The two parts are always bound together. Same is true of Jesus, our head, and all the parts of the body, his church. The same life flows from the head to the body in union with him. This is powerful stuff. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes to earth, takes on flesh, adds a human nature to his being, and as a result of his work, he says, now share in my life. Share in my life by faith. We are in Christ and he is in us. We're one. And we're participators in all the benefits that come with that. We're partakers, the scripture says, of the divine nature. Man, there's so much power there. Do we live this way? Do we live like we have this power? Do we live in light of this identity? Many of us don't. Remember, friends, this is all from God. This is all by his gracious, sovereign hand. I can't say that enough. Remember, none of this happens apart from God starting the work and regenerating our hearts and making us alive and transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He's done that work. Without him satisfying the wrath of God, none of this takes place. That's why we praise him. A man who's dead in his sins and under the wrath of God, what can he do? Nothing, according to scriptures. God does it to him. And so just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God makes us alive spiritually. And at that point, we come to the end of our deadness. We've been raised to newness of life in him. 
And God has put his spirit in us. We're born again as new creatures. We're children of God, partakers of the divine nature. We're given new affections and a new disposition, a desire to serve him. Not only that, then God says, by the way, I've, I've predestined a whole bunch of good works for you to walk in as well. From the beginning to the end, he does this work. That's why we praise him. Our calling now, brothers and sisters, is to live in that identity. To live in light of all these theological truths. That's our, that's our truest identity. You may think, well, all right, I'm a student at, at Masters, or I'm, I, I do this for a living. We have all kinds of identities. Our truest identity is what Paul says we are in this passage. So live in light of that as a people in union with Jesus. I want to just close with this story. It's one of my favorites. It's a, it's, it's a little piece written by Luther back in 1520, a little pamphlet called On the Freedom of a Christian. And in this little work, in 1520, he explained to this very confused world in Europe at that time what the gospel really was. And this story holds up even today. And it's really powerful because I want you to try to find yourself in this story. Here's what he says. He says, the gospel is like a story of a great king who marries a harlot. Which character do you think you are? We're all the harlot. And this harlot can't make herself the great king's wife. She doesn't have the power to do that. There's nothing in herself, there's nothing in her ability to perform that's somehow going to grab the king's attention and say, marry me. She's powerless, helpless in this situation. The only way she can become the king's wife is if the king chooses to put his eye on her. That's it. If he decides to choose her, if he decides to make a vow to marry her, then she'll become the spouse of the king. Then she'd become his. And Luther goes on to say, and that's what happens in the story. The king's eye does fall upon the harlot. He does choose her out of all the population of the kingdom. And he does make a vow to her. He says, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And the king grants to this harlot the status of royalty, even though she doesn't deserve it. Certainly her life doesn't deserve it. But she's royalty. And then the harlot turns to the king and says, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. And Luther writes this. And so the poor sinner shares with King Jesus all of her sin, all of her death, all of her damnation. Therefore, the sinner can say today, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, who is mine, he has not. And all that is his is now mine. That's what your king has done for you. How can we not worship? How can we not praise? How can we not have joy when that's true of us and that's true of our Jesus? Let me ask you, how does that truth about your union with Christ change you as you sit here this morning? How will that affect you this week as you make decisions in your life? How will that impact the way you struggle against sin? the way you celebrate the victories that the Spirit gives you. This is life-changing stuff, guys. I know it's big. I know it's lofty. I know right now you're saying, I want it more tangible. Patience. We'll get there. But this is beautiful stuff. We bow your heads. I want to give you just a few minutes maybe to process through some of that with the Lord.